That's what we're talking about here on Everyone Talks to Liz. High hopes for a vision, high hopes to make a living. But you know what? Hope's not a strategy. And that's what Everyone Talks to Liz does, is we introduce you to people, some of whom you know and others who don't, who fought through it. They've reached high, maybe beyond their grasp, and reached for the stars and actually snagged them. Maybe even snagged a few planets in another galaxy. Who knows? But welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. And we're so glad you're joining us. We hope again. Please subscribe, listen, and then rate. And of course, give me five stars or whatever the hell you're allowed to give. Uh, You know, my guest today is somebody with whom I've become very close friends because I so admire him. He is one of my business heroes. He is Rich Gelfond, the CEO of IMAX. And you know, if you were born any time before 1990, when you thought of IMAX, you thought of, as I like to say, bears catching salmon. You know, these documentaries on animals and and the Hubble telescope. But what they've done is they've dovetailed into massive entertainment over the past 20 years and very much under the tutelage of the one, the only, Rich Gelfond. Welcome. Welcome. I mean, I still miss the bear and salmon movie, Liz. (laughs) I'm telling you, I never did. My dad took us to these. We loved them. But you still, I saw the Hubble, the Hubble telescope one, which was brilliant. Yeah, and we've done recent ones on elephants and on Madagascar, and we still do a lot of those. Is there one coming up that we should look forward to? There's one on asteroids coming out, coming out soon. But there are some surprises. We'll surprise you. Okay, so does Bruce Willis climb on top of the asteroid to divert it from hitting planet Earth? Damn, you saw that one already. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to explain to people why I picked you. You know, when people see CEOs, they think, oh, they grew up with everything. They grew up with their parents paying for college. They lived in a great house. They never had any trouble. You are very much antithetical to that. And your story to me is one of the most inspiring in all of business news. So I wanted to kind of begin at the beginning, Rich, and explain to people, because we always want people to listen to this podcast and finish thinking, I could do it too. If he could do it, I could do it. You know, why not me? So I want to go back to your childhood on Long Island. How'd you grow up? I grew up in a lower middle class home um, in a place called Plainview, which was aptly named. It was... (laughs) A very plain view. And um, my parents were, you know, you don't know it when you're growing up, but I guess, you know, scraping by. Um, We didn't really celebrate holidays and get presents. When I had to go to the doctor, my dad would yell at me, why do you have to spend the money? He was unemployed about six months of the year. Well, wait, you know, I, I knew that your dad was a furrier. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's... That sounds fancy, but it's not. No, he wasn't the entrepreneur um, selling the fur coats. He was the guy sewing the pelts together. So he looked like when he'd come home from work, he was covered in fur. He looked a little bit like a bear himself. Maybe that was the inspiration for IMAX. (laughs) Bears catching salmon. Bears catching salmon. He likes salmon, by the way. And um, um, it was a very seasonable business because people didn't, buy fur coats in the summertime. So in the winter, he was relatively busy. And the summer, he was home. And, you know, whatever reasons in his own childhood, he wasn't very ambitious. And he would, um, fighting over money was a common thread around our dining room table. 
not having a lot was a common thread. And um, my mom always used to say, you know, I never should have married a worker. She would say, you know, it was not very happy times, Mm -hmm. but it was like the economic um, anxiety was always part of growing up. And I think, you know, I heard your intro. We, You know, I'm not sure I agree with you about, I know a lot of people think CEOs come from privilege, Mm -hmm. but one of the things I've observed is people react to their environments in different ways. And in my case, I think the economic anxiety is something I said, you know, that's not going to be me. That was a driver. Right. Well, my dad used to say, I gave you kids every advantage except disadvantage because he grew up very poor. But disadvantage can be that advantage, that driver that will force you to reach higher. And and you you must have sensed at a really early age that either you wanted to work, you needed to work, or you had to work. But when I say early age, how early are we talking about? Well, the first job I remember was when I was eight years old. And I um, I had built a shoe shine kit, and I put it on my bicycle, and I used to drive to the ride to the local barber shop on Saturdays, and I would shine people's shoes. And I remember, and you have to remember, this was in the early '60s, you know, getting my first one dollar tip, which is like incredible. I thought, you know, I was the richest kid in the neighborhood, but I did that on Saturdays, and um, and then I started a series of businesses, I realized that if I ever wanted to escape that situation, that I was going to have to do it myself. And, you know, I had a series of crazy jobs over the years. I mowed lawns when I was in junior high and high school. But instead of just going out and mowing lawns and charging $3, I started the High School Gardeners Association, which, of course, was just me. (laughs) But, but it sounded uh, big. But I had a picture on it. I remember it was like the Beverly Hillbillies old house <laughs> before and then the mansion after. And I said, this could be you. And, you know, I said, call the Gardeners Association. And then I would answer the phone. Hello, high school gardeners. And then I would go out and mow the lawn. But I could charge $5 instead of $3 because I, I learned the value of marketing earlier on. You know, Warren Buffett has also said that he can tell if someone is going to be successful often, not always, but often, if they started a business before 13 years old. Because he started his, I believe, at 11, where he would, his his, uh, grandfather had um, a store, a general store, and he would buy a six-pack of Coca-Cola at 30 cents a can, sell it at 40 cents, and he'd you know, he'd have the profit. He'd buy more. He'd sell more. And that was when he was very young. But you had such th- this unbelievable drive. And so you say that much of it was that you didn't want to live the life that that you had experienced or what you witnessed with your father. But, you know, I would imagine that there's something deeper there with your dad. He was an immigrant, correct? Your first generation American. Yeah, his parents were from Russia, mm-hmm. but he was born in Turkey while they were on their way to the U.S., and he lived there till he was two, mm-hmm. and then he came to Ellis Island. And that definitely influenced my grandparents. Barely spoke English. Neither of them went to high school. My dad barely graduated high school. So, you know, I had, I had observed the impact of, you know, being an outsider and not being educated and 
that was a big part of it, too. I was determined um, to be educated. And let's just be a little more detailed here, because people who listen to this podcast want to know more detail. Ukrainian Jewish, correct? Yes. And they were escaping, I would imagine, the pogroms, pogroms, the pogroms, the attacks by the the czar's henchmen in Russia. Same with my grandfather. 1917. Yeah. So, So charming, right? But do you look at what your father went through and cut him a little bit of a break? On the positive side, my father was a war hero. He landed at Utah Beach. He really accomplished a lot. He had three battle stars, Purple Heart. And I really respect all that about him. Mm-hmm. He worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and actually helped build the USS Missouri. So there are aspects. Wow. But I don't cut him a break because I think if you bring a family into this world, you have a duty to your children. And I think no matter what your issues are, at some point you got to step up for your kids. And I remember growing up, he had $5,000 in insurance. And my mother was not very happy in case something happened to him. And he'd say, I came into this world with nothing, and I'm going to leave this world with nothing. And even as a kid, that just didn't strike me as being very responsible. Sure, or very, very sort of entrepreneurial or optimistic. No, and, you know, we're all the victims of our circumstances, Liz, good and bad, as Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when my father passed away 10 years ago, and during his eulogy, I said, I really want to thank him for making me the person I am today. And I mean that quite sincerely. I mean, it wasn't easy and it wasn't pleasant, but I don't think I would trade my background and my own sense of accomplishment for anything. You know, I'm really grateful that I got to come from where I came from and got to go where I went to. Well, did you get your drive from other sources? Were there other people whom you admired? You looked even as a young child and said, that's what I want to be like. Yeah, that was one skill I had. I was always able to identify good mentors. And I, I still am at this point in life. And I was able to find... At that point, mostly men, some women, who were able to teach me something that I couldn't get from my own family. And over my career, I learned so much from so many of those people. And they played a real important part. And when people ask me today, young people, one of the keys to success, I always say it's finding the right mentor and finding it at a young age, too. It's hard sometimes for people growing up in really poor neighborhoods to look and see, oh, that's what that's what I want to be like. So what happens is they look, especially in this day and age, at these reality TV stars, the YouTubers who are just acting foolish and, and making a lot of money, or they'll look at the Paris Hiltons of the world and say, well, uh, you know, I want to be like that. They just don't want to do the work to get there. What would you say to them? You know, it's a tough issue is, I mean, there weren't a lot of obvious mentors along the way. I think you just have to be persistent. So one of my mentors was a um, uh, the president of the musicians union who lived two houses away from us. And I helped him stuff envelopes for his campaign and talk about, you know, how he could succeed at doing that. And another one was a local lawyer who the better I got to know him, I didn't respect him <laughs> so much. But as the ambulance chaser. <laughs> more or less, yes. But at a young age, you could identify things he had going for him. So I don't mm-hmm. think you need, you know, to meet 
Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. I think you could look for qualities in all kinds of people that you find are attractive and that you can learn from. And as I got older, I found better and smarter and more um, important mentors. But I think it all followed the same pattern is what trait do they have mm-hmm. that I want that they could help me get? And I must say to my father's credit, he wasn't really threatened by that. I guess he could have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except that you were able to look at him and say, all right, that's what I don't want. Let me look elsewhere and, and glean that from other people. Let me fast forward to high school where you started yet another business that actually formulated your media and I, I guess entertainment skills that later flourished and helped you become the successful CEO of IMAX, which, of course, thank you very much. Uh, the Avengers was just unbelievable on an IMAX screen. But let's go back to high school. I started a newspaper about New York sports. It was called New York Ball. How old were you? I think 15. Mm-hmm. And um, I had no money to start it. So I started it by selling subscriptions for a newspaper that didn't exist. (laughs) And then I sold, um, literally, I went to Madison Avenue at the time. It really was Madison Avenue. And I sold ads for a newspaper that didn't exist. Um, And I raised enough money to start a newspaper that did exist. And I hired a bunch of um, high school classmates, eventually other people, um, got it published. Eventually, I bought typesetting equipment and put it in my parents' basement. I think at the high point, I had maybe 25 people working for it. And um, and you we, were paying them. <clears throat> we were paying some of them. And <laughs> it was sold at the Nassau Coliseum, at Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. at newsstands all over New York City. And a lot of my going to high school was publishing my newspaper. About? Local sports teams, we're talking the Rangers, the Yankees, the Mets. The Islanders, when they were just getting going in those days, was Mm -hmm. fantastic. And I would cover the thing. So it was amazing. I was in the dugout once with Willie Mays and Tom Seaver. I would interview all kinds of celebrities. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He's a really famous Ranger. And my mother had cooked a lasagna dinner. And I always had this kind of... um, unabashed um, guile where I would say whatever came to my mind. It was Phil something. He's so famous. Phil Sims? No, Esposito. Oh, Phil Esposito. Phil Esposito. Oh, Phil Sims is football. What do I know? And I went to one of his games and I said, why did you let the winning puck go through your leg? And he said, I don't answer questions from cub reporters with garlic on their breasts. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's, it's funny now and it was funny then. But it teaches you a certain amount of toughness in life. And I remember interviewing Will Chamberlain, who, as you remember, was over seven feet tall. Yeah. And I'm, you know, five foot six. And he was sitting on a chair and I had to stand on my toes to get my tape recorder (laughs) to get the microphone high enough to interview him. But it was an unbelievable experience. I mean, you were managing people. You were doing content. You were selling ads. How many did you eventually have as subscribers? I don't, well, subscribers wasn't big enough, but Mm -hmm. the publication run was about 25,000. Whoa. And we sold most of them. In high school. Yeah, it was a pretty big business. Did that help you um, get the attention of colleges when you were applying? 
You know, nowadays, kids will do anything so, so that, just to get something on their resume. So for that's college. an unbelievably great story because, no, <laughs> I went to a public high school in Long Island where they didn't know what to make of me. I was an okay student, mm-hmm. but I didn't go to high school. I ran a business, so my <laughs> grades were fine. And the counselor told me that I should probably just go to Nassau Community College because I didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to three schools Nassau Community, Stony Brook, and Vanderbilt. Well, explain to people Stony Brook is also it's uh, a New state York school, State. New York yes. State school. And I got in um, to Stony Brook. And actually, Vanderbilt gave me a half scholarship, but it wasn't enough to pay the whole thing. And after it was all set, my father had a friend who was a, um, he had gone to West Point and he was a very successful guy. And he was like yelling at my father. He said, Your son should be going to Harvard or Yale. Why didn't you apply to those places? I mean, you know, the kind of background I had mm-hmm. and the things I did, but we just didn't know about it. And that's back to your question before about role models and mentoring today. And, you know, one of the things that affected me in my life, and I might be wrong about this, was my own ability to overcome the odds. So I might still overestimate other people's ability to do it. But I still think I'm, you know, very much an optimist. And I think if you set out to do something, you can do it. You ended up at Stony Brook winning the William Sullivan Outstanding Graduate Award. What did you do where they looked at that and said, he deserves it. Rich Gelfond deserves this. I was a maniac there. I um, <laughs> I had a very high grade point average. I um, I was the first student trustee ever elected to the board of trustees of the university. I was an editor on the school paper. I worked for Newsday thirty hours a week. That's a a big newspaper. And I graduated in three years. I mean, I was a crazy guy. You were driven, very driven. And and your mom, I don't want to give her short shrift. Was she different from your dad in inspiring you? In a different way. Yeah, my dad was a fairly negative guy. Mm-hmm. My mom thought I could accomplish anything. Like she would say, you know, whatever it is you want to do, you could do. And I think she directed some of her anger about some of her situation and funneled it through hopes about me. So she was like, you know, you're going to overcome this. You're going to show them. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. That's a Jewish mother, right? Yeah, I'd say so well, for sure. They, they want their children to do better than they did, always, which is a which is a great thing to aim for. <laughs> I want to get past your formal education. You're now in the working world. And what is your first gig in the working world? Because it's an interesting path that Rich Gelfond took to eventually become, I want you guys to know, the CEO of IMAX. So I went to Northwestern University Law School, and I did very well there. And I clerked for a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, which is right below the Supreme Court. Right. And his name was Max Rosen, and he had a very strong impact on me. He was a very important mentor because he had been a cabinet member in Pennsylvania. He was a federal judge. He was a highly known federal judge, very respected. And he really taught me um, the uh, the rules. That's a shorthand for saying like how the world worked in a very different way. 
And then after that, I went to a law firm. I went to an investment bank. I started a dry cleaning business. Okay, stop I, there. Stop at the dry cleaning come on. business. Doesn't that follow linear? <laughs> dry cleaning. What a schmata to let me be a big Hollywood mogul. No, I want to stop at the dry cleaning business. Why dry cleaning? I went to law school because I watched Perry Mason on TV, and I thought that was a great way to get out of the middle class sort of and succeed. But when I was a lawyer, I realized what you did was you told people not to take risk, and that was exactly opposite of my personality. And I was at a big Wall Street law firm, which I loved, and a great firm called Cleary Gottlieb. And when I was there, I did takeovers, and I loved the people, but I just didn't like the job of telling people what not to do. Mm. I wanted to figure out what to do. So um, family of mine in California was in this 99-cent dry cleaning business. So I sent my brother out to learn the business. And long story short, I got some venture backing, and we opened 30 stores over a period of two years. What did you know about dry cleaning? Um, about the same thing I knew about shoe shining or <laughs> mowing lawns. What, I, fake it till you make it? Huh? Well, I wouldn't say that. I think work hard, learn a lot, mm -hmm. be prepared. I actually told someone the other day a great story, which I probably shouldn't tell you, Liz. But, oh, go ahead then. <laughs> but um, <laughs> at one point, um, I was trying to figure out how we could say our dry cleaning was different than anyone else's. Mm -hmm. And as you know, my last name is Gelfond. So I, when I told some people to invent a substance for me called Gelfonite, <laughs> and I wanted to say... <laughs> That gelfonite helped clean. You know, it worked. It was a of good course. cleanser. That gelfonite would clean the clothes better. So I was always, it wasn't like I was settling and saying, let's just do things mm -hmm. the way other people did them. I was always looking for a way to do them better. And how did that lead you to IMAX? So I sold um, um, my dry cleaning business to Colgate Palmolo. Um after working for them for a very brief period of time, I um, uh, joined Drexel Burnham, uh, which was an amazing place um, in its heyday. Learned the financial skills uh, to do leverage buyouts and how to sell companies and buy companies. And then um, once Drexel collapsed, I used those skills to try and buy other businesses. And I was involved in the acquisition and sale of two or three companies. And then one day, it was President's Day weekend in 1993, mm -hmm. I went to the Smithsonian, and I saw this thing called an IMAX theater, and I thought it was amazing. And the next day, I got to my office, and total coincidence, an investment banker sent me a book about, am I interested in buying IMAX? <gasps> and I thought it was just a sign from somewhere. Beshert, that, as we that, say. That, that, I don't speak Yiddish. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm Means glad meant to the, be. I need my grandparents here for that, Liz. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I thought it was meant to be. So I had a partner, Brad Wexler at the time, at, who knew something about the entertainment business. And we did the work, and we raised the money, and uh, we bought the company. We closed in 1994, over 25 years ago. And there were like 60 theaters in the world. And 
your favorite salmon movies were playing, <laughs> and there were whale movies too, and shark movies. And we had this crazy idea. Why don't we take it mainstream and do Hollywood movies and IMAX? There's a genius idea. And which movie company agreed to let you do the first movie on an IMAX screen? It was Sony, mm-hmm. which had been building uh, 68th Street and Broadway in Lincoln Center, and they had already been working on the movie. So um, it was called Across the Sea of Time. Um, so it wasn't as preposterous as I'm making it sound today, but we had a very early commercial success. But we soon found out there were dozens, if not hundreds, of obstacles to making that happen from the kind of cameras you use, to the sets, to the actors, to the um, way the screenwriters wrote right, the movie. Because movies. it has to stretch across this massive screen and translate properly, visually. Yeah, and there wasn't technology to do that. Mm-hmm. You, there was a reason that there were, there were whales and salmon, because you didn't have to pay them anything. <laughs> if you had to pay Tom Cruise or Steven Spielberg, you know, it was a different scale. So um, <laughs> um, there were a lot of obstacles. So we f- soon figured out that um, I'll never forget. Um, we took Steven Spielberg to one of the theaters early on and said, why don't you make a movie with IMAX cameras? And he said, when they have a thousand screens, you know, call me back. And how many screens did you have at that time? 70, 60, Oy. 70. Mm. And we figured out how to make IMAX plug and play. So what I mean by that was rather than filming the movies in IMAX, we figured out how to take regular movies and blow them up to IMAX. And which was the biggest success in those early years in plug and play? Well, the first one um, that we really did was Apollo um, 13 13 Mm -hmm. with Ron Howard. Great movie. And that was the first one they tested. And then I don't remember exactly the sequencing, but we got very lucky um, the Walt Disney Company was doing Fantasia 2000 in the year 2000. And Roy Disney had the idea, why don't I release that in IMAX first? Mm. And it was an amazing mm. time because Disney was in play, if you remember, and uh, Michael Eisner and Roy Disney weren't getting along. And here was little IMAX in the middle of this whole thing making that movie. And the movie in IMAX was a phenomenal success it did over a million dollars a screen. And then after it left IMAX and it went in regular theaters, it didn't do that well because people just loved it in IMAX. And, you know, I can go as fast or slow as you want, but c- condensing the next 20 years, you know, proving out that concept that people really wanted to experience um, entertainment in I- using IMAX technology was the fundamental piece that made the whole company work. And we figured out technology, whether on the theater side, which is now laser, or whether on the movie side or the camera side, you know, over the last 25 years uh, to facilitate that. Well, I remember seeing uh, one of the Harry Potter movies on an IMAX screen and that Quidditch scene where they were having the race, they were, they were battling it out, was so majestic on an IMAX screen. I thought to myself... Others, others are not going to compete with that. 
However, all you hear these days are the challenges that are facing the movie business. And they throw out, oh, streaming and, and these great shows that are now on Netflix and Amazon and some of these others. And Disney's about to launch a streaming opportunity here. So what do you see, whether it's streaming or something else, as the biggest challenge facing the movie business as it pertains to IMAX screens? Well, as it pertains to IMAX, I see mostly opportunity, and that's because we're in the blockbuster segment. Mm. We do big movies. So we did Spider-Man this weekend. How did it do? It did fantastic. Mm -hmm. It was our best July opening ever, $29 million for us. Um, Avengers Endgame was our second best movie after Avatar. Um, So these blockbusters, people don't want to watch them on their couch. They don't want to watch them on their iPhone. They don't want to watch them on their iPad. On a global basis, um, it's a culturally uniting point. They want to go with their friends. They want to go with strangers. They don't want to sit home with their parents. Don't forget how big that one is. And they want to experience entertainment in a special way for event entertainment. And I think that's only getting bigger and bigger because you can narrow it to the um, movie space, but you look at live concerts, Mm -hmm. you look at Coachella, you look at all kinds of -of out-of-home things. People really want spectacle. I think we used to say for every um, iPad, there has to be an IMAX to create the social integration. Unfortunately, those numbers were a little bit off for us. Uh, yeah. Well, how many screens do you have today? We have about 1,600 in 82 countries, and we did over a billion dollars in box office last year, and we're running better than that this year. And in, in a movie we're involved in, whether it's in the U.S. or China mm-hmm. or wherever it is, we'll typically do 10% of the box office. So in Endgame in China, Avengers, we, Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. we did 13% wow. on less than 1% of the screens. Huge. I also recall going back several years to Avatar that in China, they were scalping IMAX tickets for something like $90 a ticket. Yeah, it was more than that, but also... The Politburo shut our Beijing theater one day and went to see it. And it, it, was, <laughs> it, it was crazy. Wow. I mean, I think we did 2 or $3 million a screen in China at that point on that movie. On Avatar. So we're still waiting for Avatar Part 2. But as we look toward the questions that I know our viewers are dying to ask, I've got a couple here that are, that, that are coming in. Um, what is the biggest challenge that you had to overcome? That's a really interesting question. I would say probably the biggest challenge I had to overcome was to think of myself in a different way. So, you know, growing up, I thought of myself as the outsider and as the one scrapping. And IMAX is really in the middle of the Hollywood infrastructure, not the global entertainment infrastructure. I think I had to change my mindset and over time the company's mindset and realize that we belonged and we were here to stay and we're here to make a difference and we could really control our own destiny. So in a way, an analogy I'd use is if you were poor, you're always afraid you're going to be poor the next day. But that's not necessarily the best attitude to have to build something big. And I think that changeover in thinking Mm -hmm. that this was for real that we had built something major, 
that we could accomplish a lot more would be a, a tremendous challenge. I always wonder from your perspective, because now you're in the business of hiring people, you're in the business of watching business talent. I'm not talking about actors and actresses, but you know, what's the number one thing that, say, for example, college interns, because we're here in the summer, there are a lot of college interns in any field can do that would blow the socks off you as a company CEO? I think innovate, come up with a new idea. I think come in and say, you asked me this question, but you're asking the wrong question. This is the right question. And I, you know, and I've seen that. Not very common, but mm-hmm. I, but I've seen that. I thought you were going to give me give me a different question, Liz, which is my favorite interview question, and I shouldn't say it because now everyone I interview will know it. <laughs> but I ask what their biggest weakness is, and there's only one wrong answer, which is none. There's other wrong answers, which are, you know, I'm a perfectionist, oh. I'm a workaholic. Oh. You know, there's a, like literally when I get those, they're off the list. Like, if you know, when people say, you know, I micromanage or sometimes I'm not introspective enough. I mean, you want people who are confident enough who can say no one is perfect. We have our weaknesses. So absolutely. Uh, you know, it's so inauthentic when they say, oh, I'm a perfectionist. Oh, please. Uh, you're a big thinker, not just a movie guy. What worries you about the current state of the world, if anything? Well, how could you not be worried mm-hmm. about the current state of the world? I'd say the number of troubling issues there are um, globally. Mm-hmm. So you could look at it on a, um, you know, kind of an issue-based thing, whether it's, you know, global warming or whether it's sustainability or or you could look at it country by country and say Iran, South Korea, or look at the rise of dictatorships mm-hmm. or, you know, look at the unrest in different places. The magnitude of issues and problem spots just seems to be higher and higher. I had dinner the other night with someone who is about 90 years old, and I asked him if this is worse than any time in his life. And he said, absolutely, he thought it was. Really? And it seems that way to me. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels that way, but we've got to be optimistic. Um, and, and in being optimistic, we want to do a quick lightning round and ask you some entertainment spiked questions here. It's too obvious to ask you what your favorite movie is or your favorite director, or your favorite actor. So I would say this. Which movie changed the course of your life? Which movie did you see that had such an impact on you that it, it almost altered the course of your life? There were two. One was The Wizard of Oz when I was three years old, that scared the living hell out of me. (laughs) And it took me years to go to my next movie. And then the other one, which I love, was Chariots of Fire. Because I thought it was so interesting um, the way one of the runners ran towards a goal, religion, Mm -hmm. and the other ran away from a goal, which was his past. And I saw elements in in myself in that. And I thought it was a brilliant movie. Brilliant. When you go to a movie... How important is the experience itself? You know about the rise of IPIC where you can lean back in a very couch-like atmosphere and recline and you get fancy food delivered to you. Do you have a favorite movie time snack? Do you, do you think at some point that IMAX theaters should offer more of that kind of food? I mean, I'm not demanding sushi, but I wouldn't re- re- reject it, Rich. I think that's for someone else, Liz, <laughs> not us. I think when you go to IMAX, you're a cinemaphile. 
I think we work with the best directors in the world, you know, whether it's Chris Nolan or Steven Spielberg or J.J. Abrams or the Russo brothers or Kevin Feige right now. I think they, we want them to paint with the, their brush on the best screens in the world. And that's our objective and that's what we aim to be and let other people recline the chairs or throw the popcorn at you. That's not who we are. Did Spielberg ever acknowledge or come back to that conversation where he once said to you, once you have a thousand screens, then we'll talk? We were polite enough not to remind him. (laughs) Rich Gelfond, it's an amazing thing. And I, I do also want to add that you've given back. You actually have gone back to Stony Brook, which gave you that shot at a fair price for education. You are now chairman of the board of trustees there, correct? That's right. And you could actually name your ticket when it comes to sitting on boards of fancy universities and all of that, but you choose Stony Brook. Stony Brook is fancy, Liz. (laughs) It absolutely is, but you know what I'm talking about. There are a lot of people who are just such... I don't even know the word. They genuflect to what they believe is is something that would reflect on them. Oh, I you know, I, I sit on Yale's border, I sit on Harvard's even though I didn't go there. You stick with Stony Brook. Well, Liz, it's amazing to see the kids who come in and Stony Brook actually has one of the highest ratings of social mobility of any university in the really? in the world, actually. And it's in- incredibly empowering to see the difference you can make. And also, um, the faculty is amazing. Um, Alan Alda established a Center for Communications. Richard Leakey, the anthropologist, is on our faculty in addition to many, many other people. It's world-class. So yeah, it's, it's just totally rewarding. And you know, I'll, to put it in a context, which maybe sums up a lot of this, when I said before about I wouldn't trade my upbringing, it's because it feels so rewarding to do it that way. And I think if I was on the board of something else where the name was the most important thing versus, um, you know, what you're providing, I think being part of a place like Stony Brook is just inspiring. As we finish up, I want to let our listeners in on a little bit of a personal secret from you. It's not even really a secret, but in your home, you have prominently displayed one item that is very important from your past and your parents' past. Describe that. So my grandfather um, supported his family on a foot-powered Singer sewing machine before there was electricity. And in the house, in a prominent place, is that sewing machine. Because I want to remind my family, my kids, my anyone who comes in, that, you know, that's where it started. And, you know, when my grandfather died a long time ago, I asked him for the sewing machine because it, it's a reminder. And, you know, one less good story, which you can edit out if you want, <laughs> is my decorator tried to move the sewing machine because he didn't think it went in that corner. And I told him if he put one hand on it, I would chop it off. <laughs> we, we're not chopping that story out. I love it. Rich Gelfon, thank you so much. And uh, as IMAX grows, you grow. It's it's absolutely thrilling to to hear about your trajectory in life and how you really fought for your future and all that's come with it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Liz. Enjoyed it. Thank you.
And uh, we thank you guys for listening. And I promise you this, no matter what story we tell, it will be inspiring. And hopefully in some way, shape or form, it becomes a mentor type story for you. And remember, we always like to say here, nobody's seen a rainbow without seeing a little bit of rain first. So don't freak out if you fail, you get back up, you try again. I think Rich's story is, is one that really explains it all too. Thanks so much for listening to Everyone Talks to Liz. And by the way, hello, I have big news. The Claim and Countdown launched 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network. We love it. We're so thrilled to every day bring you the biggest business news stories, breaking, exciting, important to your money. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. 